welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. My name is Micah. If we have not met, I'm uh, one of the pastors at Awaken. Welcome to you. If you're new to Awaken, there are some cards on the table that we'd love to know you are here. If you're looking for a community to get involved with, uh, we would uh, we'd love to take you out for coffee and tell you more about Awaken and hear a little bit more about you. What brought you here? So. Fill those out. If you, are, uh, if you call this place home, I want to just stop for a moment and say um, many of you give to Awaken like weekly, uh, regularly, monthly, and um, that means a ton. It means a lot to me. It means a lot to this community, and a lot of really, really amazing things can happen because we have collectively said yes to this vision that God has given this church and have given ourselves to it. Um, so I want to say thank you for doing that. A little review before we jump into 2 Corinthians. Last week, we opened this series. Um, you know, I figured since we're doing a good old-fashioned Bible study, I'd wear my pastor coat. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's working or not, but uh, uh, so we started this series, and um, lots of things to, to learn about Corinth, right? Uh, a city at the center of the Greco-Roman world, uh, right on the water, so it was home to sailors and all kinds of uh, crazy things, as you might imagine, with sailors. Uh, <clears throat> it was also the center of slave trade in ancient Greece, if you didn't know. So most of the city was actually slaves. Um, a couple of things we talked about in relation to the opening section there, Paul, an apostle, remember his sort of authority is under fire. There are some people in the church who are causing ruckus, ballyhoo, uh, tomfoolery among the Corinthians, and they're saying essentially Paul's not the real deal. He's not an apostle. And so he visited them, uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but it was very painful, and they got called him out and sort of uh, in front of everybody, and nobody really came to his aid. So um, he's saying, I'm an apostle to the church in Corinth, believers all over. Grace and peace to you. What if grace and peace was the response of the church to the world? What if that was in the hip pocket? That was like the first go-to. Grace and peace, love, mercy, grace, peace. And we left sort of the conviction of sin and other things to the work of the Spirit in the world, which has always been. And this would allow us to move into a place to live from, which I think is a bit more what we were made to do. Agree with God on people's in inherent dignity and humanity and image of the, the image of God in humans. What if we, that's our move, grace and peace to you. Uh, and we sort of lived from that spot. So this week, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, we're going to read through verse 7, starting in verse 3. So I would ask you to stand as we read the scriptures, and then uh, we'll jump in here. <clears throat> Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. God, as we open this story, this letter to this little church so long ago, I pray that you would make these words alive and real to us, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts, leading us to be and uh, to live into the ways uh, of Jesus in the world. So to that end, we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. You can have a seat. 
Uh, I want to ask two questions this morning as we study this text. One is, why does Paul begin this way? Why does Paul start this way in this letter? And we'll find that it's different than other letters. Secondly, what does he say? What is he really saying about comfort and suffering? Before we jump into that, I don't want to skip over verse three because I think it's really important. Paul says something that is absolutely, it's like a theological bomb. I mean, it's big what he's doing in verse three. It's very subtle and it's very easy to miss. So let me unpack it just a little bit for you. Um, right out of the gate in verse three, Paul says, he makes this declarative statement about God. Praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which may not seem very interesting to us, but to someone who we know is Jewish, right? Paul's a Jew. He's a Jew of Jews. He, uh, from the tribe of Benjamin, da, 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 down the line, he's a Pharisee. We know this from the book of Acts. He may in fact have been a part of the 71 member council called the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem. We don't know that for sure, but for sure we know he's a Pharisee. He's a Jew. So Paul's familiar with the liturgy and the worship of the Jewish people. He knows the kinds of things that the psalmist would have said and that the, the worship leader in the synagogue would say, which sound a lot like, in fact, exactly, praise be to our God and Father. This is a, a well-used phrase in the Psalms and in, in a synagogue at Paul's time. Another way of saying that would have been, praise be to, to the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You may have heard this language before. So Paul takes this distinctive Jewish liturgy, and he, which asserts that the Jews worshipped Yahweh, and that Yahweh was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is to say it's, very, it's highly nationalistic, right? To be Jewish equals to worship Yahweh, and to be Jewish equals to be from Abraham, all the way back to Genesis 12. So what Paul does is he takes this idea, this sort of little phrase, praise be to our God and Father, and he, in, he inserts the work of Jesus and the theological implications of what Jesus has done into this little opening greeting that he says, praise be to our God and Father the, and our Lord, or of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Regardless of how many people knew what Paul was doing, remember Corinth, it's a pagan city, not a lot of Jews most likely, maybe some, but not a lot, um, whether or not they knew what he was doing or they knew the, the, the subtle but very seismic shift that he makes, he's laying down some serious theology here. The synagogue blessed the God of our fathers who revealed himself to Moses, remember, at the burning bush. So for the Jews, God's revelation to them as God's people begins with Moses at the bush where Moses says to God, who, who am I supposed to say who sent me? What's your name? And God says, anyone remember? I am what I am, or maybe more grammatically correct, I will be what I will be, this verbness of God. That's God's name. So God's people know God by this name. I will be what I will be up until this point. What Paul says is, this is not no longer true, but there is a new revelation of who God is, and we know God because we know Jesus. Paul says, essentially, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. So Paul is essentially saying uh, a lot of things by saying this, but maybe most importantly, God is no longer known simply as the God and Father of Israel, but in Christ. All who are found in him, both Jew and Gentile, have access to God through the Son. Uh, we talk a lot about how important Judaism is at Awaken, and, and that remains true. We worship a God who revealed himself to and called the people, the Hebrews, his people. So knowing what some of their customs and all, it's very, very important to understanding the scriptures and Jesus and how it all works together. At the end of the day, it's important to also say that there are some very, very 
important distinctions. One of them being, for some, that we, we assert that Jesus is the face of God. That in Jesus, we have been re- God has revealed God's self to us, and we can know and have relationship with God in and through this Jesus. And this is certainly nothing short of what Paul is saying in this opening. Thought it was important to stop there. Why does Paul begin this way in this letter, and what does he say about comfort and suffering? Uh, in order to answer the question, why does Paul begin this way, it begs another question, which is, how does Paul normally begin, right? It's a lot of questions. Uh, you, you, you may notice if you are here long enough that w- I ask a lot of questions when I study the scriptures. I have been told by some that that's unnerving at times, that, uh, you know, back off on the questions maybe. No, Polite, politely, I will say. And here's why. For us as Western Christians who have been educated in this world, like the telos, the point of it all is the answer. What's the answer? What's the truth? How do I know it? And the answers are important. But you have to recognize that the people who wrote this book and the culture in which it comes from really doesn't think as highly about the answer as we do. For lots of Jews and lots of rabbis, the answer is not the most important thing, but the next best question. Now, that's not, again, that's not to say answers aren't important, but questions are very important. The nature of God's people, the name of God's people, Israel, one who struggles with God and in people and is not overcome. This is the very heart and soul of what it means to be a follower of God, to wrestle. So, Back to my question, if I may. How or why does Paul begin this way? How does he usually begin other letters? Turn to 1 Corinthians, if you will, and we'll look at just a couple of examples that'll give us a clue as to how Paul normally opens a letter to a group of people. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 1 says, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all kinds of knowledge. Now skip over to Romans chapter 1. Paul begins similarly in Romans. Very long introduction through verse 7. that he, he says, grace and peace to you. Then in verse 8 he says, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faithfulness is reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness on how constantly I remember you in prayer uh, at all times. And I pray now, at last by God's will, uh, that the way may be open for me to come to you. One more, look at Philippians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians chapter 1 says, and you could probably guess how this is going to go, right? Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of the partnership in the gospel from the, from the first day until now. Paul begins almost all of his letters with grace and peace, Paul an apostle from the Lord Jesus Christ, and then by praying for the group of people that he's sending the letter to. Either he says that he's praying for them or he thanks God for them and all the things that God is doing in and through them and how they're witness and how they're sort of known throughout the, the world that this resurrected Jesus is real in this community. And he prays for them. Why does Paul not begin the letter to Corinth with the same kinds of prayers that he's begun most of all of his other letters? This is a great little question. 
Remember last week, if you were here, we talked about the, the timeline for when this book was written. And this becomes very important. 51 AD, Paul arrives in Corinth. He spends 18 months there. He leaves and he goes to Ephesus for three years. And he writes three of the four letters that were written to Corinth. One and, or two and four, which are lost. Or two and three, which are lost. We only have two. You see what I did there? Two. There's only two letters to the Corinthians that we still have. The first one he writes from Ephesus, and then he receives a letter back from them asking all kinds of questions about how do we live this out? How do we do this? Then he responds to that letter that he received, and that's 1 Corinthians for us. It's his second letter. He then goes to Corinth and visits them, and this is where, all, this is where it all hits the fan, right? This group of people at Corinth call Paul onto the carpet. They call him out in public, and it's a fiasco. It's a disaster. Nobody comes to his aid. Nobody bails him out, and Paul's really upset about this. He then writes his third letter, which is a severe letter, he calls it, and, and he addresses this issue. And then later on, we finally get to 2 Corinthians, which is his actual fourth letter. Now, all of that to say, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, is everything copacetic in Corinth? It's a great name for a band, by the way. No, not everything is hunky-dory there. I mean, you know, is the relationship between Paul and this church in Corinth, like, fine? It's not. There is some serious and major relationship tension that exists between Paul and these people. I mean, imagine, right? You're in the office. You're on a sales team of, let's call it, like, 50 people. You have a big gathering, your sales meeting. The team leader gets up there, and they start going on. And then five people stand up in the back of the room, and they just let him or her have it as the team leader. They stop at nothing. They go all in and all out. You're not a good leader. You can't communicate very well. Clearly listen to you. You're not getting the job done. The sales are da-da-da-da-da, and then they just sit down. And then the next day, the team leader just writes them an email, and, and writes the whole team an email. It's like, we're so proud of you guys, really excited for what, what's happening on the sales team, and everything's, you know, da-da-da-da. How bizarre would that be? Everyone would kind of be like, what actually just happened in that room yesterday, right? Like, you can't just bypass that. I mean, this is big. This is big. Does Paul sweep it under the rug? No, he doesn't. In fact, at the end of this section, which we'll get to in two weeks, Paul asks them to pray for him. Why would he do that? If this group of people can get to the point where they're praying for Paul again, Paul knows that the Spirit's at work. Paul does not begin with the normal blessings and, and, and I'm so proud of you because there is relational conflict in this church. Here's the payout. Why do I bring this up? What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that we do the hard thing and we move towards difficult conversations with people we love in whom we are in community with. Let me say that again. We do the hard thing and we move towards conflict, not away from it. When we are in community with people in, with whom we love, this is what Jesus does. This is the gospel move. This is the move that is the kingdom. We work for restoration and reconciliation when at all possible as people who follow Jesus. We work towards shalom. We work for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will inherit the earth. When it's possible, the community of Jesus moves towards peace and restoration and resolving conflict. When possible, we do everything that we can. And we're the first ones to make the move. 
Husbands, you want to know how to lead your wives? Say sorry, say sorry first. Even when it's not your fault. Be the one to the table first. That's what it looks like to lead. It's not power over, it's always power under. In any situation, that's the kingdom move. People who follow Jesus come to the table first for forgiveness. To say, I'm sorry. To say, can we work this out? We do not let rogue people or people groups run roughshod in our community. That kind of behavior where people just call them out in public, it does, it's not allowed. Question for us to consider this morning. Are there unaddressed people or relationships in your life that have patterns of relational unhealth? Are there people or relationships in your life that have patterns of relational unhealth? Are you open to the spirit this morning who might move you to do something, say something? Keeping in mind that it might be to walk away. It might be not every relationship is salvageable. We know this. We've lived long enough, many of us. Sometimes there has been enough damage done that we can never return to where we were. And so there becomes a new normal. That is okay. That's part of being healthy as an adult, as a differentiated self. (laughs) What I am encouraging us to consider is what does the gospel look like? What does the kingdom look like? It always looks like peace. It always looks like forgiveness. It always looks like restoration. And so to the degree that it's possible in our relationships, in in our lives, we're moving towards that. That's the kind of community we want to be. That's the kind of relationships that we want to foster. Paul does not gloss over, he does not sweep under the rug a very difficult and intense relationship with the Corinthian church. He addresses it. And you'll see later as we study this more. He goes right at it. That takes courage. It takes a lot of courage. But it's the way of the kingdom. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no two ways around it. What does he say about suffering and comfort? Verses 4 to 7 is this whole bit about, essentially, God who comforts us, and now when I'm in trouble, you're in trouble. When I'm comforted, you're comforted. When I celebrate, you celebrate. And when you're comforted, I'm comforted. And when you celebrate, I celebrate. It's, it's as if Paul seems to think that this group of people here in Corinth are all interconnected, that when one thing happens to one person, it actually happens to the whole group. It's as if Paul thinks that this group of people in Corinth is actually like all different parts of one body. I, that's a good metaphor. I should tell him about that one. You know, like, it's, it's as if, like, there's a huge tapestry. You remember the song Ben taught last week, and there are all these threads woven together by the Spirit's work in the world. And when one thread gets pulled over here, the other side feels the vibrations of that pull. We do not do this alone. You are not autonomous, sort of on your own lone rangers. That's not the way of the kingdom. That's not how Christian community works. Paul says we are interconnected. Now, let's talk about how that works out, right? Because many times in churches, people are like, we all suffer together, we're in community, you know, when you suffer, I suffer, and it's a church of a thousand people. And everyone's kind of going, um, this is the BS flag, <laughs> right? Like, okay, seriously, is that even possible? 
No, it's not. It's not possible. Let's take Awaken, for example. A church of 150-ish people, I cannot be this kind of person in your, all of your lives. You can't be this kind of person in everybody else's life. That's not even possible, and it's completely manipulative for a pastor to hold that over a congregation that's this big. But is it possible to create units of people within a community that where that's actually possible, 10 to 15 people, say, who when you suffer, I suffer because I know you and I know what you struggle with. And when I suffer, you suffer because you know me and you know what I suffer with. It can't be for everybody and not all of us can be in on this. But if there are units of space in a community that allow that to happen, that's what Paul's getting at. We're interconnected. And sometimes when one unit needs the whole to sort of chime in, we can do that because we have resources that we bind together collectively for a common goal and vision. It's as if we're interconnected here. As Jesus suffers on our behalf and is resurrected on our behalf, and then Paul says we participate in the life of Jesus, so too we do this with and for each other. So what does it mean to be a part of a community where somebody knows when you're suffering? Somebody knows when you're celebrating? Well, it takes two things, at least. One, it takes a community, a group of people who will say, I want to be this for you. Do you know what the other part is? You saying, I'm struggling, or I'm hurting, or my heart is broken, and I have so much doubt, I can't even think straight. But if there's a community of people who want to suffer with somebody, but said person never moves forward. It takes two. It takes both. You know, it takes two to tango. Now, this, is a little, this is a dance here. And this is the invitation of Paul. Step in. This is where the kingdom happened. This is where the music of the resurrection is playing, baby. So get in on it. Because it's good. It's life. It's hard, but it's good. He also says, if we follow Jesus, we begin to look like Jesus. If we follow Jesus, we begin to look like Jesus. The longer you hang out with the person, the, 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 the more likely it is that you will begin to act like that person. You know, the that I do sometimes? I hang out with Ben and Toph all the time. These dumb Saturday Night Live skits. We spend half of, ah, that's not true. Just the end of our meetings when all the important stuff is you know, done. Then we watch these Saturday Night Live skits and now I'm doing it. It's like showing up in sermons, right? You look at two old people that have been married like 75 years. Sometimes they often actually start to look like each other. Like, it's been that long, right? They just rub off on each other. They start to sound like each other. They talk the same. Their patterns of habits and living start to, like, become the same. This can be for good or bad, right? I had a friend of mine in college. I hung out with this guy all the time. And Laura, my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, was like, who are you? Who, right? Influenced by said person. Point being, if we follow Jesus, we will begin to look like Jesus. Now, friends, if you don't hear anything this morning, hear this. I don't say that often, but I'm saying it now. What is the pattern of Jesus' life? Suffering, death, resurrection, and the power of God on display. 
This is the pattern of Jesus' life. Suffering, death, resurrection, the power of God on display. If we start to hang out with Jesus long enough, our lives should resemble suffering, death, resurrection, and the power of God on display. And the longer we hang out with this Jesus and walk with this Jesus, the more our lives should look like suffering, death, resurrection, and the power of God on display. I'm going to come back to that. Let me wrap this up. Paul says that suffering is not random or unfortunate. I think sometimes when we read suffering in the scriptures, we sort of, I assume, like anything that's bad that happens in my life, oh, I'm suffering for the Lord, I'm suffering for this. Like, people will say, I got a flat tire. Man, the demons are out to get me today. And sometimes I think, maybe you ran over a nail. You know? Like, all this, you know, my... Well, my life is like falling in on me. The demons are out. Maybe there's like a series of really bad choices that you've made. And, and now here we are. Sometimes, friends, there, are real op- there is real opposition to people who follow Jesus. There is an enemy, the scriptures tell us, and there is a force that is, that is darkness and that has a foothold on this world that we live in. And so if you follow Jesus and you stand for what is life and what is light in a world that's, you know, dark, you're going to run into opposition. And sometimes that's very real. But sometimes we make choices and we reap the consequences of what we sow. Why am I saying all this? I think sometimes pastors, unfortunately, sort of play this like easy answer blanket over really difficult conversations and, and situations in people's lives. And it's actually not helpful. So what I want to say is suffering, the, one, the kind of suffering that Paul is talking about in the scriptures is suffering that is directly connected to your living for Christ in the world that opposes Jesus. There's real suffering that will happen if you do that. Sometimes crazy things happen. Sometimes we make bad choices. Sometimes I'm collateral damage and somebody else's bad choice. And sometimes there's an enemy that opposes me. Or sometimes all three. So how's that for helpful? (laughs) Probably not very. Which is kind of right where I want to be. Because this is where discernment and wisdom and a community of faith together, seeking Jesus, discern what's happening here. Yeah, that's the enemy. We need to, like, in the name of Jesus, claim resurrection on that. Or, dude, you ran over a nail. Buy yourself a new tire. Or let me help you. Suffering and random, as Paul talks about it in the scriptures, is directly connected to your living out and living for this Jesus. And as he sort of zeroes in on this, and I'll close with this, what Paul seems to be getting at in this passage more than anything else is that when we do suffer for Jesus, God meets us in the midst of our suffering, and we become comfort. We actually become the comfort. This is bizarre. This is crazy. This is paradoxical, and it's grace. Paul seems to be saying to the Corinthian church, as they suffer, or as he suffers, God is found in the midst of our suffering, which begs a question, if I may, just for a second. Is God the author of suffering, or is God found in the midst of suffering? Very, very, very important question to consider. Is God the author of my suffering? Is God in control? Is God pulling all of the strings here for good and for bad, and I just have to trust that it's going to work out for his glory? Or is there another way to see this, that possibly 
God is not the author of suffering and pain and evil, but rather is found in the midst of my pain and suffering. This, how you answer this question will impact how you relate to God, how you understand the Bible, how you, and this is a game changer. And I think it's, it, well, I, I, I don't hold my cards very well. I'll say this. I think it's very problematic to assert that God is in complete control of every detail in the entire cosmos, and God is the direct sort of co- uh, cause and effect. God is the one who's the mover and the counter move of, of everything. Because then God is the author of pain as well, or, or beauty as well as pain. I don't think that looks like Jesus. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you see the Father. My understanding of what Paul is offering here is that God is not the author of pain and suffering, but God is Emmanuel. He's the one who's found in the midst of it. And so if you're here this morning and you, we were singing and that last song, uh, 10,000 Reasons, and you're like, I can't think of one. God is there. God is here. And we sing together when some of you can't sing at all. And we will carry the tune. But this is the claim of the gospel, that God is found in the midst of our pain and of our suffering and gives comfort and perseverance and that which it takes to walk through whatever it is we're in. And then, I mean, that's a pretty, that's pretty good news, I think. That's a pretty good message. But then, like to top it off, Paul says, and then you become the comfort. So when somebody else is suffering and in struggling and in pain, you, you, flesh and blood, sweat and tears, you, with a brain and a voice, you, you become the comfort. God uses you. Should you choose to submit to this thing that the ki- that's called the kingdom and be wrapped up and caught up in what God is up to, he takes your life and your experiences and uses them to create new life and beauty and resurrection. Come on now. That's good news. Because listen, friends, suffering and death will not escape any of us. We, we will not escape it, none of us. Suffering and death, regardless of whether or not you follow Jesus, will come to you all. The Vikings being bad, suffering and death, we know it to be true. It will always be the case. It doesn't matter if you are an atheist, uh, a Christian, it does not matter. Suffering and death, that's for you. Which is pretty depressing. And then comes the gospel. And then comes this Jesus. And then comes Paul. And then comes Micah. (laughs) And he says to you, Either it's suffering and death. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Like, have as much fun, do as much, whatever it is that gives you pleasure, because that's all you get. It's either that or, gang, something has happened and changed the world in the resurrection of Jesus. And now, not only does God offer this, where our suffering and death become like resurrections, not just once then, but resurrections in our own lives where God redeems and creates and builds and makes beautiful things out of that which is broken and dark and that the enemy would use to steal, steal, kill, and destroy. God takes and makes something beautiful. And the power of God is on display in your life. And then he takes those things and you become comfort for others in the midst of their sufferings and their death and their resurrections. 
gang. That's good news. I think good news. And so I invite you to consider. Today I stand before you. Choose life or death. Cain or Abel. Resurrection or whatever other option you'd like to call it. That seems like it's, you know, like a really big deal. And I think it is. Will you allow the work of God in your life to bring about resurrection from your deaths? That's the question. Will you say yes to this Jesus? Will you submit to this way of living and this kingdom move? And then Paul says, you become the comfort. You get wrapped up in a story that is so beautiful and so profound and so not about you. All the great spiritual people of, of, of the ages have come to this conclusion. It is not about you. And when you come to that, when you get there faster, you're better off. It's not about you. So, that's all I have to say today. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.